Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Glory to your name. You're more beautiful than the most beautiful thing we could imagine. You're more perfect than the greatest perfection we could envision. You are high and lifted up. Yet God, some way, though that, as that song began, I, I was a wretch. Through Jesus, you've washed us white. God, you've, you've cleansed us. You've cast our sin for those who believe in Christ as far as east is from west. And God, we, we bow before you this morning, as Martin Luther said, simultaneously sinners and saints. God, we recognize that, that this past week we, we have fought against the flesh and, and sometimes we've lost. Sometimes we've fallen short of your glory and yet... We've beheld your glory in the face of Christ, and in Him our sin is forgiven. And God, we pray, even now, before we hear your word, that you would give us the liberty to, to call out and identify anything that stands between us and truly hearing from heaven today. God, that you would open our hearts wide to hear the gospel, to hear your instructions, to hear your word with, with no preconditions or preconceived notions, God, that we would be completely laid bare by your word, and that you would make us, by way of your spirit, willing to hear it and receive it and embrace it, for it has to be good, for it is from you. And clearly you desire our good. You did not spare your own son to save us. We give you praise for that truth. God, thank you for what you're doing in this church. Don't quit, we pray. Deepen your work in our hearts and in this valley. Extend your work. God, we want to multiply, not for our greatness, but because Christ is great and worthy to be praised by all people everywhere. God, thank you for the blood applied. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to you on the subject of positioning churches for endurance. So we're going to be in Acts, the book of Acts. Uh, for those of you who are new, we just we work our way through books of the Bible, and we happen to be in Acts chapter 14. We trailed off in verse 21 last week, and we saw Paul and Barnabas persevering in our king's mission, and we saw that perseverance is fueled by a passion for and confidence in the gospel. We saw despite threats and physical hardships, that Paul and Barnabas were compelled by this truth, that the blood of Christ had been shed and in order to be applied to sinners. So they, they refused to quit on getting the gospel to the nations even when it's hard. 
And when we trailed off in verse 21, the first half of verse 21, we saw Paul and Barnabas preaching in Derby and making many disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? They're baptizing them. They're teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And at this point, when they get to Derby, we might be like, great job, huge mission success. Let's go home and celebrate. Tell everybody about the massive revival that we had. Tell everybody about the crusade we had and all the people that signed a card and prayed a prayer and go home. Is that what they do? No, they didn't go home. And by the way, that would have been the easiest thing to have done from Derby. They could have gone, continued east to Paul's hometown of Tarsus and then just gone on back to Antioch of Syria and said, we did a great job, but that's not what they did. What'd they do? They retraced their steps right back through the cities where they had faced persecution. Why, why would you go back to the place where you'd just been persecuted? Because they weren't on mission to get numbers. They weren't after decisions that would diminish. They were on a mission to establish churches that would endure through trials that would surely come so that there would be a beachhead for the gospel in that community that would last more than just I prayed a prayer and then I went on and lived my life the same way. Does that make sense? They want churches that last. And so they go back to these same cities to help them endure. Would you hear with me the word of God? We'll consider verse 21 through verse 28. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, then they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. And from there they sailed to Antioch, meaning the Antioch that's in Syria, from which they had originally departed, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Verse 27 And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. I want to share with you three truths about building churches or positioning churches to endure. Not just to spring up, but to actually last and to go the distance for Jesus. The first thing we see is in the second half of verse 21 and verse 22, and it's this, we must be encouraged to continue in the faith. We need encouragement. We must be encouraged to continue in the faith because troubles must come to those living for the King, King Jesus, and looking for His kingdom. Paul and Barnabas don't take the easy way home. They bravely retraced their steps to take an encouragement tour right through the very places where they had faced persecution. Why? Because God uses encouragement to fuel our endurance to the end. So in verse 22, what do they do? You see it? They strengthened the souls of the disciples. They wanted the disciples to be informed, the totality of their lives, their very souls, they wanted it to be informed by and consumed with the gospel. They didn't want to just have people consuming the gospel on their terms, but rather to have the gospel envelop their whole lives. 
such that nothing, no trouble, no adversity would knock them off course from following Jesus. Their aim is that disciples would be faithful to Christ even when faced with many, many tribulations. So, they seek to solidify in these disciples an unshakable resolve to run the race to the beautiful face of Jesus with endurance. Did you know Satan doesn't want you to endure? He wants, well he doesn't even want you to hear the gospel, but once you hear the gospel, he wants it to, to fall on soil where it'll spring up real quickly, but when the troubles come, when the weeds come, when the tares come, that they would swallow up the gospel seed and destroy it. So Paul and Barnabas encouraged the disciples to continue in the faith. Now maybe you're thinking, that's it? I mean, what kind of encouragement is that? They come and they're like, I want to encourage you, keep it up. Keep going. Well, sometimes that's what you need to hear. When I was a cross-country runner, I remember one race. I think I've told you this illustration before, but my dad was late to the race. He didn't always get to come. He was a pastor. He got called to emergencies and hospitalizations and that sort of thing. But it, it, was, a, it was a big race. It was, it was the district race, if I remember correctly, up in Lexington, Virginia at Rock, Rock, Bridge, High, Rock Bridge High School. And I, I'm running along a ridge, and, man, I'm just... I, I mean, moping, looking down at my feet, and my dad, I didn't think he was going to make it. I was discouraged by that. And then I heard this cry ring out. Son, you've got to go. You look terrible, and your team is losing. I was the third best, if you know anything about cross country, the top five score. And if there's a tie, then you go to six. And if there's still a tie, you go to the seventh man. I, I was the runner on the team who was decent but not great and not terrible. And if I had a great race, our team won. And if I had a poor race, our team lost. And, well, you don't want to lose at districts because that affects how you go to go on to regionals. And my dad told me how it was. He didn't tell me I was great and I was doing wonderful. He said, come on, dude. So Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? They give them a dose of reality. And I want you to understand that encouragement and a dose of reality sometimes have to go together. So Paul and Barnabas don't tell them that their troubles are going to disappear or that God won't give them more than they can handle. If you've ever heard that song on Christian radio, just turn it off when it comes on. The Christian song that says God won't give you more than you can handle. Baloney. He'll give you a lot more than you can handle. And then in the power of the Spirit, He'll help you handle it. And it'll be God who handled it, not you who handled it. Man, I, I need to stay on my notes. All right. So he says, Paul and Barnabas say, look, troubles will come. You've got to continue through the troubles. What were they saying? They weren't saying, because you trusted Jesus, your life is going to be amazing right now. They were saying that through many tribulations, troubles, anxieties, trials, hardships, uncommon sacrifices, we must enter the kingdom of God. I'm here to tell you this morning, if you're not willing to follow Jesus through tribulations, then you aren't willing to follow Jesus. And sometimes we just need a brother or sister to come alongside of us and remind us that the troubles of this present life, though they are unavoidable, they aren't unexpected. And 
Praise God, the promises of God and the eternity that awaits us before the face of Jesus is infinitely sweeter than the pain and the problems that we will face in this present world. Why do we walk through tribulations on the way to the revelation of the kingdom of God? Why do we walk through tribulations on the way to the revelation of the kingdom of God? We are already citizens of the kingdom, Paul tells us. But we don't see that reality yet. Christ hasn't come. So why are the troubles on the way? God uses faithfulness, the faithfulness of His people under fire to convince still more people that Jesus is alive. How do I know Jesus is alive? Because she lost her mom, he lost his dad, this great thing happened in their life, this great pain came, and they stayed with Jesus. How did that happen? Because Jesus is alive, and he's alive in them. And it's proven through perseverance through the pain and the adversity and the hardship of following Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes about floggings. And beatings and shipwrecks and exposure to elements and hunger. And then he writes about the one that that pricks my heart the most is his anxiety for all the churches. Paul's anxiety, his concern for the churches is on display right in this passage. Why does he go back to the churches that he planted and he had to run away from the city under the threat of persecution? Why does he go back? Because he wants the churches and the disciples that make up those churches to make it. He understands that tribulation isn't just for missionaries who go overseas, but for all who belong to Christ the King. We, by enduring through tribulations, become living examples of Jesus himself who endured the greatest tribulation, the cross, where he bore the wrath of God to redeem sinners. God wins the world through the faithful witness of his church in the face of troubles on the way to the revelation of the kingdom of God. But Paul and Barnabas, they can't be in every church all the time. They can't be there to encourage them constantly, right? That poses a problem. They're just two guys, and unless Jesus comes back in their lifetime, and we know he didn't, they're just going to die. So, when Paul, what do Paul and Barnabas do? We see in verse 23, they put a team in place to equip and encourage the churches to go the distance. You see that in verse 23? They appointed elders in every church, which brings us to our second and probably longest sermon point in the history of sermon points. You say, how do you do that with one verse? This is a big, loaded verse, all right? So I want you to hang in here with me this morning because I'm going to I'm going to tell us some things about God's Word that aren't quite aligned with where we are as a church. And it's been years of study that have led me to this point. And before I even get to this point, here's what I want to share. If we're God's people, are you God's people? You trusted in Christ, born again believer, you're God's people. If we're God's people... And we discover that the way we've always done it does not align with the way God designed it. We have no choice but to change it. Let me say that again. If we're God's people 
and we discover that the way we've always done it doesn't align with the way God designed it, we have no choice but to change it. Do you believe that? Otherwise, we don't believe the Bible is the supreme authority. Otherwise, we believe that how we feel or our history or what, the way we've always done it is actually a greater authority than God's Word. Do we agree with that? All right. You still listening? They appointed elders in every church. That's every local church. When we read Acts, it can be difficult to understand what parts of the story are normative for the church today, meaning we still need to do it, and which parts are unique to that transition period of history under the time of the apostles. In the case of church leadership, we find that the New Testament consistently reveals that local churches from this point in the story forward are led by elders from here all the way to the completion of Paul's letters, the pastoral epistles, which sort of tie a bow on God's instructions for the church going forward. So what does that mean for us? That strongly suggests that verse 23 is showing us what God intends to be the regular leadership structure for local churches to this very day. Unfortunately, church history reveals that it didn't take long for churches to jettison God's design, leading to a multitude of troubles, like the papacy, for example. However, by God's grace, many churches are reclaiming God's design for local church leadership and recognizing His wisdom in His design. And, and my hope and prayer as we get started in this section is that that's going to be the case for North Roanoke as well. Here in these Galatian churches, every single church doesn't get one pastor. What do they get? They get a bunch of pastors. They get a plurality, more than one pastor, a team of elders appointed by Paul and Barnabas. How, how did they know who should be the elders? It's not an arbitrary decision, right? Surely Paul and Barnabas had observed the lives of these men in their times of discipleship, and they had recognized the elder qualifications in their lives and through their conversations. Before we go further, we need to define the word elder. It's not a word we use very often in Baptist life, at least many Baptist circles. But the Bible uses the word elder. It's a Bible word, and we don't need to be afraid of Bible words. The Bible speaks of elders using multiple terms. Elder, overseer, and pastor or pastor-teacher. These, these three terms refer to the same office. There's, there's not an elder over a pastor. If you're a pastor, you're an elder. If you're an elder, you're a pastor. If you're an overseer, you're an elder. Everybody, everybody there? All right. I just had a funny movie reference, but we'll move on. So one and the same. Elders, pastors, overseers. Elders, what do they do then? Elders oversee and lead the affairs of the church through biblical and gospel-driven lenses. 
they pastored the church not only by preaching and teaching. Sometimes there's this idea, well, the pastor, I just want the pastor to preach the Bible on Sunday and leave the rest of it alone. You can't lead a church to grow in Christ's likeness if all you do is preach and you never apply what is preached to the structures of the church. He has a job to lead the church, and not just solo, but with a team of elders. So they lead not only by preaching and teaching, but by guiding the church and making word-centered decisions. They guard the church against false teaching and wolves who seek to destroy the church. They are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3 And therefore, they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it, Titus 1.9. They must accurately handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. In addition to being teachers and protectors, they are also called equippers in Ephesians 4.12. We are to labor to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. God's enduring design for accomplishing this work, teaching, guiding, protecting, and equipping, is churches led by men who are, as Ben Merkel puts it in his book, Why Elders, gifted by God to help men, excuse me, to help the congregation become stable and mature. Which means what? Elders have to themselves be mature. And maturing in the faith. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And it's interesting, when he gives the qualifications to be an elder, what does he say? He, he doesn't say find the most gregarious, magnanimous, uh, extroverted people and make them all elders, does he? He doesn't f- say find the guys who share the gospel and see thousands come to saving faith in Jesus. Those aren't bad things. It's great to be gregarious and magma- magnanimous and to, to be able to be ease, have ease in sharing the gospel. But what does Paul focus on? He focuses on character. He says they need to be above reproach. He focuses on home life. He says, look, if they're kids... Are, are crazy and disobedient? That's not an elder. How are they going to manage the church? He can't even get his kids to sit still for an hour in a corporate worship service. Is this on? All right. Character is a key because elders are to be examples to the flock and not easily persuaded by pressures to compromise God's word or pressures that appeal to the flesh. The separation of these terms, elder, overseer, and pastor, to justify the creation of a hierarchy of leadership over multiple churches. Have you seen that, right? Well, this elder is over multiple churches or multiple congregations. You never see that in the Bible. It's a post-biblical innovation which is inconsistent with Scripture. Sorry, Presbyterians. Are you all aware that... Okay. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a pastor who's not an elder or an elder who's not a pastor. And the pastor-elder teams are always situated in the same congregation together and serving the same congregation together. While the church will have some elders who are especially gifted at working hard at preaching and teaching, and they must be, as we heard earlier, be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and apt to teach, they are not so supposed to be divided into like ruling elders and teaching elders. All elders must be gifted in sound doctrine and in teaching. The New Testament is clear. God's design for churches is that they be formally led 
by a team of elder pastor overseers in whom the desire to serve and the qualifications for so serving are recognized by the existing elders and by the church. Verse 23 does not say that one elder was appointed per congregation, does it? It says there were elders appointed in every church. It's very clear. This is why the practice, and notice what it says further. It says it was a, they were appointed for who? For them. Who's the them? They were appointed for the members of every local church. This is why we practice church membership. Why do we call people into church membership? Because there's going to be a day of reckoning. There's going to be a day when elders give an account for the souls for whom they were together as a team responsible. What does Hebrews 13, 17 say? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping your watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So God's design for the stewardship and leadership of the members of local churches is what? Not one guy doing it all himself. It's a team. A team of elders who love one another and serve King Jesus by leading their local church to reflect and pursue the heart of Christ in all things. Peter reflects this truth when he instructs the elders, plural, to shepherd the flock, singular, the one church of God that is among them. We see the same pattern in Philippians when Paul and Timothy write, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers, or the elders, right, and the deacons. We see it in James 5.14 when he writes, Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders, plural. Marita summarizes this verse this way, Without a doubt, this verse refers to a plurality of elders in every single local church. Now notice, the res- what is the response of the churches to getting leadership appointed for them? Are they like, well, we don't want those guys. Why would why would, why'd you pick those guys? No, look at what the church does. They don't receive their elders as burdens to endure, but as blessings from God. Do you see that? They commit themselves, they, and they commit their leaders to the Lord, signifying their joyful submission to God's will in the selection of these leaders, and it signifies that they're trusting God to work through the elders' leadership for their eternal good. Now, have y'all ever heard of ordaining someone to be a pastor? We, We don't see the word ordination in this verse, but what ordination signifies is in this verse. What did the church do? They recognize that God has set apart these men as elders and they trust God to accomplish His will for their church through their leadership. How how are they able to do this? They had believed God. Do you see that? They they committed Him to the Lord in whom they had believed. God, if you want to design our church this way, if you want our church to be led this way, then we're going to believe you. Because if you sent your son to die for me and save me, then surely you are competent enough to gift, call, and qualify the men that God is going to use so that we can endure to the end. At the end of the day, this is a question of, do we believe God? Is God good? Is he wise? Does he know what he's doing? Now, as most of you know, our existing structure does not reflect the summary that I just gave of the New Testament's teaching on elders. Now, we're not alone in this, right? 
we didn't we didn't get off track overnight. Um, Baptist churches have been establishing what we are a single elder model, and then there's pastors that report to me, and we have committees and deacons, but we're we're not really elder-led in our polity. Ben Merkel, in his book, Why Elders, says this about many modern churches. He says, we've drifted from God's model for the church and demonstrated that we have lost confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. Instead, we have patterned our churches after a successful corporate model on the one hand or a purely democratic model on the other. Neither are biblical. Consequently, a return to a biblical model of government is desperately needed in the church today. You say, well, I'm out of here. Or, how do we get there? That's really your response, right? I mean, that's, that's our two choices. And, and I hope you want to say, well, how do we get there? My desire, North Roanoke, is that we would get there over time as an act of obedience to our King. This is going to require the development of some additional men to serve as elders within our family of faith. And I, I believe God's already working in the heart of some men that he might raise up for this task. When the Constitution Committee, many of you know we're working on a new constitution. When the Constitution Committee presents a new constitution for your consideration, you're going to see that much of our structure is going to main, remain identical to what it is. But there is going to be a section that's going to pave the way for us to begin to identify and train and ordain the men that God will call to join and form a team of elders that leads us onward for the glory of God. The section, that section in the Constitution ends with these important words. This section of the Constitution is included in recognition of the fact that we desire to be a church led by our pastors as described in the New Testament. But, at the time of the writing of this Constitution, such men must still be identified, qualified, and equipped to serve in this role. Are you all still with me? This is a lot of content. And I know it feels a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, but it's very important content. You still with me? This is what the Bible says. Here's where we are. We're trying to make a roadmap to get aligned with what the Bible says. Is that clear? All right, now I'm going to be direct for a moment, like super direct and, and personal. Some people don't want a plurality of elders. Not because it isn't what the Bible says, but because they really just don't want to follow leadership. It's true. And it's a warning sign because a tangible way that churches follow Jesus on mission is by being together in following their elders as their elders follow Christ. Healthy churches and healthy Christians are not skeptical as a default position toward their leadership. They're supportive. They want their leaders to succeed because when their leaders succeed, they succeed. They're not looking to nitpick every little thing, every little time, their default position is, man, I'm in this. Now, if you go do something crazy, or you start leading me contrary to the Bible, you're out of here. But otherwise, I want to support you. I want to pray for you. I want to follow you. Not a blind following, of course, 
but also not a hypercritical following. And we live in a hypercritical world and a hypercritical society, and the church is supposed to be different than that. We're not supposed to bring that into the church. God, by giving the church more than one elder, is giving us confidence that the direction of the church isn't coming from one man's flesh. It's coming from a team of qualified men seeking the mind of Christ together. There is strength, there is trust, and accountability in numbers. Multiple elders gives the church confidence in following her elders' lead. And it helps provide enough leaders who are of one mind and heart to ensure that the totality of church life is anchored in God's Word and that there is a unifying gospel rationale in all that we do. Further, it requires elders to seek the mind of Christ together in a micro-community in which they find clarity and confidence in discerning the Lord's will as they then lead and humbly call upon the church to supportively follow. I understand, church, this never happens in a silo, right? You can't lead in a vacuum or lead in a silo. It always happens in conversation. Conversation with God's people, conversation with one another as elders, and ultimately conversation with the Spirit of God as He puts all that together in the hearts of the leaders and shapes the direction for the church. Plurality, more than oneness, is a key way that the Lord protects leaders from pride on the one hand or an entitled and dictatorial mentality on on the one hand, while on the other hand, He prevents the church from ignoring or sabotaging or harmfully undercutting her pastors. Plurality is the way that the Lord protects pastors from the emotional and physical toll of being on the front lines of the battle for His people's endurance. Do you know what my job is? Your endurance. And as we grow, that toll only grows exponentially. And as much as you need community, pastors need community too. They need other brother pastors to come alongside of them and shoulder. This is the greatest weight known to man. That you would endure. That you would make it. This is how I pray. It's how I prepare. It's how I preach. When I prepare a sermon, I see your faces. And in a single pastor model like we have now, I'm, I'm, this is raw, it's unfiltered, but it's real. The pastor lives in a rather perilous position. No matter how faithfully he follows Jesus, no matter how much he longs for the good of the church, no matter how, how faithfully he follows Christ, one or two misguided and well-positioned members or perhaps wolves can collude and bring an unfounded or wrongly motivated charge to undercut, undercut God's leader and God's leading and make a mess of a church just like that. But when you've got a pastor functioning in a team together on mission, it's much harder to mess that up. It's much harder to say, well, you wouldn't believe what Daniel did. And then four or five other elders in the room go, yeah, it's hard to believe that because he didn't do that. Is it 
Am I making sense? Why do churches that have the single elder model get in a mess? Because it doesn't take much to make a mess. And sometimes that single elder, it all goes to his head and he's a bully. And he's a jerk. And other times, he was following Jesus faithfully, but there's a couple guys that didn't like what he wanted to do or where he wanted to go, even though it was from the throne room of heaven. And they're like, we're just going to get this guy out of here. And it's not that hard to do. Y'all are like, wow, wasn't expecting that this morning. <laughs> I'm just being clear. I, I don't know how to be any other way than transparent. I feel this weight every day of my life. I take it home, I take it to church, because I, I want to lead us on for the glory of God, and sometimes God's people don't like it initially. And it helps for you to know that there's more than just one guy saying it, that we're singing from the same hymn book, that the Spirit of God is leading your pastors together to the throne of grace for your endurance. The reality is some people don't want to change anything because change is hard. But here's the truth. If you'll never change, then you're not following your leaders because something's got to change for you to be following somebody's lead. If you'll, if you'll only do what you've always done, you aren't following your leaders, you're following yourself. God's protection against pride in pastors on the one hand and utter impotence on their, in their pastors on the other is multiple pastor, elder, overseer teams working to discern the mind of Christ and lead their church onward to the throne of God. His answer is not deacon-managed pastors. It is a team of pastors Working, praying, discipling, hiring, teaching, counseling, planning, overseeing, and equipping for the glory of Christ our King and the good of His church. So to endure North Roanoke, we need to be strengthened and sustained in the gospel, point one. That was a long time ago. And point two, we need to begin to think about how are we going to pursue God's model for leadership so that we would endure and not let, let Satan slither in the side door and make a mess of the good that God is now doing. By God's grace and with his help, he will guide us toward greater biblical faithfulness in this area over time. It won't happen overnight. You've got to develop the men who will serve on the team. But it can happen. It has happened multiple times over across this country in churches that have sought to be more faithful to God. But our endurance is about more than encouraging one another, and it's about more than getting our structure right. This is not just a lesson on church government and managing nonprofits. Finally, we see in verse 24 through 28 that we need to rejoice in what God does and be refreshed through Christian relationships. Luke summarizes Paul and Barnabas' return leg from Pisidian Antioch to Syrian Antioch where they began their trip. They, they have an opportunity to share the gospel in Perga and then they head to Adaliah and from there they sailed to Antioch. Luke specifically reminds us Antioch is where they had been commended to the grace of God. It was Antioch, the first truly multi-ethnic church where the church came together and asked God, begged God to care and provide for and protect and use Paul and Barnabas. Just like we've 
prayed for Tony and Karen today. They had been prayed over and, and sent out to new peoples and new places with the gospel. And the language at the end of verse 26 suggests that the Spirit had given them a specific work to do. And Luke wants us to know they fulfilled all that the Spirit filled them to accomplish. So what do they do when their assignment is complete? All right, we're done. They go back to the church. They go right back to where they started from. They don't waste any time when they get there either. Do you see what they did? They didn't go back and like take a, a week-long nap, which is probably what I would have felt like doing. That was a long trip, persecution, a lot of preaching the gospel. But they come back and boom, boom, what do they do? They gathered the church. And when they gathered the church, verse 27, look at what they did. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This word declared is written in a way that implies that it was a, excuse me, a very long meeting. If we're going to have long meetings, you know what I want them to be about? I want them to be about what God has done. Those are good long meetings. Let me tell you what God did. Man, I hope God does great things and that maybe you can come to our business meeting and tell us about them. That'd be the longest section of our meeting. That'd be praise be to God. This is what we have long meetings about, what God's doing. Man, God is at work. This is what he did. He's completed his work. They gave a detailed account, literally, of as many as God has done. Now, that doesn't translate well into English, but what they were saying is, they gave an account of every great thing that God did. Not what they did, but what God did. Do you see that? What God did with them. I don't want you to ever underestimate what God will do through your availability to be used by Him on mission. And in this case, God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Of course, the Gentiles had already been reached in part, but now the gospel's going deeper into Gentile territory. A door has been, that's been closed for generations swings wide open and new places and people hear the gospel for the first time. The Spirit called them to a work, He equipped them for the work, and He opened doors for the fruitfulness of the work. They are rejoicing in the reporting as a church. And sometimes, church, what refreshes the heart and helps us endure is enough of a glimpse that God is working somewhere to keep us going. We need to report what God is doing in our lives, and we need to rejoice in it because God uses rejoicing to fuel our endurance. It's a part of God's recipe for enduring until He comes when all that will, rem will remain is rejoicing. And until then, what do we do? We encourage one another. We pursue God's design for the structure of His churches. We rejoice in the work that God does. And then look at verse 28. I'm almost done, I promise. Look at verse 28. They stayed there no little time. Now what in the world does that mean? That's a convoluted way of saying they stayed there a long time. It wasn't a short time. It was a real long time. Now what do you think Paul and Barnabas did for a long time at that church? After being on mission and facing persecution and seeing God do great things, but almost losing their lives. Paul was stoned, left, left for dead. What do you think they did there? Well, one thing I think happened, I think Paul wrote the letter to the Galatian churches in about 49 or 50 A.D. while he was at Syrian Antioch. 
But what else do you think happened? The Bible doesn't tell us, but, but just use your mind. Do you think they just rested there for a while? Do you think that they were refreshed in their relationship? Surely they kept teaching and sharing the gospel. But I think they just liked being with people that sent them out and loved them too. Sometimes you need to just lean into those relationships. And I'm here to tell you, church, if you're new here this morning, we want you to find connection at North Roanoke. We don't want you to be solo out there with Jesus and then flying in on Sunday morning and getting a great sermon, hopefully, sometimes not. But that song this morning, y'all. Yeah. So if, if you're just hit or miss all six days by myself, me and Jesus, no community, and then you fly into worship, but you never get deeper than that. You're never going to find that home to rest in. God uses his body and his people to refresh your heart. So don't just come to worship. Go to a 3D group at 915. You say, well, I went to one and I didn't like it. He lectured too much and I like more participation style. We got all kinds of teachers and all kinds of styles. You go wherever you want to go till you find your place, but don't opt out of community unity. Be refreshed. Pray together. Share your burdens together. Love one another. Get involved in a ministry with somebody else. You want to know where the joy is? It's being together with other people on mission. Volunteer in the youth ministry. Next year this time, go to youth camp and get crazy and paint your face and do weird stuff and put shaving cream on your face at 2.30 in the morning. Do stuff together with Jesus and Jesus' people. This is God's recipe for our endurance. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for the patience of God's people this morning. Lord, you do your will with what has been shared. All I can do is proclaim your truth. And leave it in your hands. You are good. No matter what you do, you are good because you sent your son to die for us. God, we pray that we would not just play at church, but that we would be a church where there is deep encouragement. A church that pursues your will for the structure of your church and where there's great rejoicing and refreshment. Refreshment in gospel-anchored relationships. God, we thank you that Christ is a sure and steady anchor and that you've given us these ways to be tethered to Christ until we behold his beautiful face. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.